Welcome to Genius at Scale. Today's guest, really excited to have Dan Kremens with us. Dan, tell us a little about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, John. I, um, I'm Dan Kremens. I, if you took a thumbnail sketch of my resume, I've, um, I've, I've spent the last 15 or so years working in the private equity sphere in one way, shape, or form. Prior to that, I had some experience in um, institutional investment research. But really, for the last 15 years or so, I've spent um, spent my career working with small, mid-sized growth stage companies, and I've done that in a, in, in a variety of capacities. I've been a you know CEO and CXO in private equity-backed companies. I've been an investor in PE-backed companies. I've been a board member. I've worked at a fund level and helped a private equity firm to stand up different opera operational kind of post-closing capabilities. So my career has been spent working with and supporting small, mid-sized growth stage companies. And the work that I'm doing in the world today is really focused on helping newly acquired PE-backed companies to really get clear on, on two simple things. One is where are we going, which is classically referred to as your vision, your strategy, your, your value creation plans. It's referred yep. to in private equity. And second is who do we need a board to get there, i.e. your people. And so much of the work that I'm doing today really centers around those two questions and helping leadership teams, their boards, their investors to get clear and aligned on those two uh, questions. So you, you have to assess who's worthy of being purchased by a, by a PE group or who a PE group would invest in and who they wouldn't. That's right. Yeah. Part of my job back when I was wearing an investor hat in private equity was to assess whether the deals that we had on the table were deals we wanted to do or not. Sure. So we were doing due diligence on these businesses. And now today, as I spun out of a full-time role within a private equity firm and now run my own advisory business, which I've been doing for about the last 18 months or so, I support uh, a variety of private equity groups in due diligence, but on a very specific component of due diligence, which we call organizational due diligence. So it's really, really assessing four threads. The first is leadership. Second is talent more broadly. The third is culture. And the fourth is capabilities. And these four things are, are very well intertwined, but the, you know, the, the point of organizational due diligence as we do it today is really to help PE firms to understand how well geared these target companies that they're considering investing in, how well geared they are to deliver on their investment thesis. Got it. So it's, 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 there's a science to that. You could actually predict it a little bit. A little bit of art, a little bit of science and a lot of pattern recognition, just having seen much of what works and what doesn't work in growing small, mid-sized companies. That's great. Um, I want to introduce it first. Um, we, we have a, a segment on the show called Shameless Plugs. So I think it's probably time. It's, it's good for context. To, I don't know if I can hold it up there. There's Dan just uh, released a, a book called Winning Moves. So obviously there's 105, uh, what do you call them? Ways. I was going to say tricks, but that's that's yeah. we don't want to make you sound like a magician. But 105 ways to uh, create value in private equity-backed companies um, in this scaling game. If you if you match scale with private, I mean the, the two go hand in hand. Right. What are some of the highlights? Some what are some of the what are what are some of the best ways to define or measure scale? Um, you may use different language, but. Uh, what are some of the, the most common or the most useful ways to create scale in a private private equity company? Yeah, I think there's two pieces of that. One is first, as you mentioned, one is first defining scale and what you know what what exactly is scale. And I, yep. you know, just 
knowing that a big part of your platform is about scale, I was kind of, I was pondering this question before you and I were talking and, you know, I, I thought of scale as it's kind of a verb, it's a noun and in a, in a way it's an adjective too. The noun That's- is the, the state of scale is the noun. Mm-hmm. As in, you know, we have achieved scale. This is a, this is a phraseology you hear often in, in growth, you know, growth land. And a lot of people probably define that in, in revenue terms. But when it comes to the noun of scale, I don't know that I actually have a clear point of view on what it, when have you achieved scale? What, you know, what needs to be true the morning you wake up and you can say, we have achieved scale. Maybe there's some revenue benchmark out there, but I'm not, I'm not frankly sure how, how I would define scale as, as a noun. As a verb, when you think about the act of scaling, I have a bit clearer of a perspective on that. And I know in, in early stage venture world, scaling is this idea of blitz scaling is talked about a lot nowadays. And it's really about favoring uh, the speed of scaling and growing over the efficiency right. of growing. And you know, I, I kind of connote scaling in an early stage context as being taking on a bunch of money and as quickly as possible growing as, as fast as you can. In private equity land, whether that's right or wrong, in private equity land, we thought about you know the act of scaling the verb a little bit differently, which is it's all about profitable growth. How do we achieve sustainable, efficient, profitable growth and grow revenue while at the same time sustaining or growing you know profit or EBITDA margins? Um, you know, and then the th- I guess the third you know variation of this definition of scale is is the adjective of being scalable. The ability to scale up uh, profitably in the case of PE-backed companies. And, you know, the way I think about that is just to maybe use a few examples. Um, being scalable as a software as a service business means, you know, you can you have good unit economics and a reasonably low cost of cus- customer acquisition. And, and so, therefore, you can, you can scale up efficiently. Um, right. Or if you're a service business, you know, you can add revenue without having to take on significant incremental cost. That's, that's what uh, uh, being scalable looks like for a service business. So all that said, you know, I, I guess the, you know, the first place to start here is, well, what is scale? And that's kind of how I, how I think about it coming from a PE background. Um, the second question you know, off, the, off the back of that is, how do you actually achieve scale in uh, specifically in private equity land, which is where my, my experience is. And the book is really, um, in its, way, in its own way, an attempt at deconstructing this idea of, I refer to it as value creation in the book, but I think value creation and scale, achieving scale or scaling a business are, are in a way, you know, pretty synonymous. Sure. Um, and so what the book does is deconstructs this vague idea of value creation into its more addressable, actionable component parts, and then cracks each one of those component parts open and equips readers uh, business leaders, investors, and the like, with this arsenal of, of proven, actionable winning moves uh, that they can use to go scale their business in each of these each of these areas. No, that's great. Can I can I throw a real life example at you? Please. I have a I have a handshake bet with a friend of mine whose daughter is the head of marketing at Rivian. And my handshake bet, I I want nothing but the best for her. I saw her grow up, all that kind of stuff. But my conversation with him is that Rivian won't make it because they can never get enough. It's a specialty pickup truck that a, a contractor will never buy. It's for kind of, I, I look at it like, a, like an SUV for sports, 
for outdoorsy people. Right. It's kind of a fun one. But at a hundred grand, I'm thinking, can they ever get any market? Can they ever get scale? Can, can they ever get enough market share? And he understands the argument, but he says, but it's so different than everything in the, in the market. I'm thinking, wouldn't it just be that Ford, I'll pick Ford or Chevy or Toyota just says, we'll come out with our copycat version at 35 grand less because there's, there's enough price tag. Can I, can I talk to me about the Ford F-150 hitting scale versus a Rivian um, or a specialty or a, I'll call it a gimmick pickup truck trying to achieve scale? Yeah, you know, as you're talking about that, what, what occurs to me is this idea that um, being different is, of course, strategically useful. But mm -hmm. being different in and of itself does not, uh, does not drive scale. Uh, being different in a market where there's lots of headroom and lots of demand and sustainable demand and not a lot of competitors and not a lot of you know, entrenched competitors that have the ability and the resources to knock you off, um, that's an entirely different story. Yeah. You know, so Rivian, I, I don't know enough about their business to have a well-informed point of view. I don't, I don't either. I just look at it and say, man. Tesla's got a truck, you know, now the Ford 150, I think they call it Lightning, but that's an e-truck and that's, uh, or an EV, I guess, and contractors will buy a Ford 150 electric. Contractors won't buy a Rivian because you can't, you can't haul anything with it. You can't put, the right. bed is too small and it's designed to you and your three buddies to go camping and, and get up in the mountains. Great. Is there a market there? Yeah. How many people, how, how many People out there are are uh, are actually looking for that that type oh, of well, especially at that price tag, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I think about you know as we're talking about this, I think about the um, the idea of of strategy is kind of often generically, vaguely defined and and abused in ways. And I, for my <laughs> simple brain, I've always tried to latch onto a really simple definition of strategy. And I, I've I've always liked the. Um, the definition that's put forth in the book Playing to Win by Roger Martin and A.G. Laffley. And they say, this will be relevant to the Rivian case study in a second, but they say that uh, strategy really comes down to answering a couple of questions. Number one, what is our winning aspiration? Number two, where are we going to play? Number three, how are we going to win within that market? And so if you take those three simple questions, and these, by the way, are the same questions I use to guide the development of strategy with private equity-backed companies. Let's bring sure. it back to the basics, the essentials of those three simple questions. If you apply that to Rivian, I don't know what their winning aspiration is, but um, I think these two questions of where are we going to play and how are we going to win are, are relevant to the kind of, you know, the, 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 the bear case that you're presenting. The where are we going to play, it appears today that they're playing in a, you know, they're playing in a a certain segment of the auto automobile market, the, the truck segment, and they're pursuing a specific demographic that has a specific use case. Yep. And the question I would pose is, is that the right where to play? Is and, and, and the answer to that question is dependent upon many questions like, you know, is there a lot of headroom in that market? Is there sufficient demand? Enough yep. people out there that have that need or, or desire a truck for those reasons. Um, is that a segment of the market where the, uh, the demand versus the, competi the com competition is such that the odds are stacked in your favor? So there's right. a bunch of derivative questions there. And then the question you know, becomes, well, okay, what if, if, we, if we're committed to playing in this segment of the market, how are we going to win? 
And that's really the question that you're, you know, you're poking a hole in to say, well, um, you, you, you kind of have the odds stacked against you. That's not to say that new competitors can't come and disrupt established markets. That's happening left, right, right. and center. Right. But it's a very fair question to say, well, there are competitors out there, the likes of GE and Ford, who are well-capitalized, well-resourced, and could easily build a solution that attacks this same market. Right. What makes you think you're going to win? Yeah. What makes you think you're going to win? And I, I don't know the answer. Maybe they have well-reasoned, well-thought-out uh, answers to those questions. But I think, you know, all this said, the, um, the, the, to answer the question of, is this company going to scale, be in a position to scale, it kind of comes back to those fundamental questions. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I see things like this in the marketplace and it's because a, a friend of mine has a, a daughter and I see, I've seen two of those pickup techs only on the road because they're just getting out, but uh, they're cool looking, but I'm going, would I pay a hundred grand for that? Right. I don't right. know. Uh, actually, I, I do know. I wouldn't. <laughs> I would, I would take my four. I don't think I'm cool. 72 pickup and put all my gear in the back and take it up into the mountains. And if it, if it got hammered, I wouldn't care, but uh, yeah. And are you their target demo? That's, that's yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not. Their not be, your perspective may not be representative of the perspective of right. their. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So oh, that's great. Well, so um, different question is you, obviously you, you deal with companies that have a, approach scale or achieve scale or wanting to take on this this concept called scale is it traditional or is it common that there's um an inflection point or a specific episode or is it um i i, I see i mean i see tons of like mba proposals where it's, it's just a straight line growth and you think there's never been a history in the uh, uh, of any company in in the universe that has year over year uh, straight growth, uh, averaged over time, and and that's how they do it. Is there an inflection point when when companies do this? Like, is there a critical episode that that has to happen for them to go from uh, launch to now we're actually you know where the hockey stick uh, right. goes up? What what's your experience there? Yeah, and, and you know, so so for as back as backdrop, the um, the the companies that I have dealt with are uh, private equity backed okay. and, and a lot of them formerly founder owned and founder led where the private equity backer was the first institutional capital. So sure. private equity firm buys the company and the, and the goal of the private equity firm, of course, is to, to grow the thing or otherwise create equity value and sell it for more than they bought it for. And so that is backdrop. The, um, you know, I've seen a lot of different, inflection points, so to speak. If I just look at the subset of companies that have been in, in the portfolio of the firm that I used to work for or client companies or, or those that I'm just, you know, I, I know of from the, uh, the sphere in which I've played for the last 15 years, I, I've seen a, a few different flavors of inflection points. Some were related to really strategic or transformative acquisitions. That's one flavor. Okay. Where, you know, one acquisition or a well-executed acquisition strategy really became the turning point for success. So the, the traditional one plus one equals three or four acquisition. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, so that's one, that's one flavor. Another flavor is uh, companies that, you know, hit the market with the right new product or service at the right time. We've had a few in our portfolio company that have, that, have looked at. 
is that good fortune or back to your strategy question is that great strategy like they they see this coming a little bit could be a little bit of both i mean depending on the situation i the um in, in an interesting way covid i think plenty of case studies of this but covid is a great example of products that kind of lucked their way into the right place at the right time yeah. we all yeah. know of examples of that uh, zoom being you know, zoom is a, the perfect one right and they were ready for it i mean they yeah. yeah. And so being, being in that position is, is the price of admission, actually executing and taking advantage of that positioning is, is of course where the game is won or lost. Sure. But, you know, I've seen it both ways where companies are very intentional about, Hey, we serve this market. We know these, these customers within this market, we know their needs better than anyone. And we're going to be very intentional about building things to meet their unmet needs is, you know, an example, a flavor of that. And then another one is just having, having a product that happens to be in the right spot at the right time. And, it, and it's funny, then you, you do the flip side and you say Robin Hood, you think, oh, okay, it didn't take a genius to say the only people using that product are, are under 30 and they're taking their $1,400 check and buying crypto with it. You go, oh, what happens when the checks stop? It was, right. it was pretty obvious what was gonna happen, both to crypto and to Robinhood, you say, you know, when the checks stopped coming, it wasn't like people were doing an automatic deduction from their non-existent job. They were they were taking fourteen hundred bucks that the government gave them twice and putting it into Robinhood and buying t Tesla, uh, Amazon, and and I don't know a handful a handful of stocks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's that's, that's the counter example. That is a great counter example. Yeah. You know, there's another flavor of of inflection point that I've seen, which is um, which is related to cracking the code on how to acquire new customers at an accelerated rate. Um, I, you know, I've seen, this is classically referred to as go-to-market improvement in private equity land, but if you get enough of the go-to-market dials dialed in concurrently, there, that tends to be a recipe for an inflection point of just being able to sell more stuff more quickly, more efficiently. Right. You know, we, I've seen examples in portfolio companies of, um, just to make this more real, of companies that have historically gone direct, have sold direct, mm -hmm. um, standing up an indirect channel and indirect takes a while to kind of get going. But once you stand up in, you know, channel, channel partnership or indirect channel, um, we've seen companies whose, whose growth has taken off um, as a result of cracking the code on how to sell indirect. So, so I guess all that said, you know, I, I don't know if there's one recipe or formula I've seen as much as just different flavors, I would call them. But I, mm -hmm. it begs a question I'm, I'm kind of noodling on here real time of, if I look across all of these, is there a pattern? Is there some fundamental consistent theme that tends to create inflection points where they happen? You know, and the things that are ringing around for me as I'm pondering this is in, in most of these cases, each of these companies is pretty clear and pretty aligned on what they're trying to achieve. Call that a vision, call that a strategy, call that a value, value creation plan. But there's some real intentionality around here's how we are trying to win. Back to the this, Roger This Martin. is a commercial vision or a commercial mission, not, not a cultural one. Yeah, yeah, commercial. And, and then understanding that culture and talent are going to have to play a role in that. But really having clarity, alignment, and real intentionality around what are the levers that we are endeavoring to pull in this business? Right, right. At the exception of other things that we could be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, that's one thing that I think is generally a constant across these different flavors. And the second is, 
and this might feel a little, little cliche, but uh, companies that tend to hit these inflection points are just pretty intentional about getting the right people aligned against those things. We're clear on what we're trying to achieve. We're clear on the levers we're trying to pull. And then we're intentional about getting the right, the right people aligned behind those. And that tends to be the recipe for at a minimum, you know, steady growth and at best, uh, you know, the, the, the opportunity for some real inflection points. So when you say the right people, is that a talent differentiator or is it a, is it a, um, an aggregate of the culture that we run where we can, we can throw a group of people highly aligned or how much of it is talent? How much of its culture? Is it, is it weighted one way significantly or no? Yeah, I, I think about, um, I think about the interplay between these two things all the time. And they um, talk about some of this in the book. As I was answering the question, just des describing it, I, I was referring specifically to let's separate culture for a second and the okay. impact that can have positive or negative on enabling performance of the talent you have. Let's just focus on the talent piece. I, I think about getting the right talent aboard as being those people that are fit for purpose for the job that needs to be done. And so the, the, the precedent question is, what is the job that needs to be done? And just to make this more real, if you're a company that is trying to, you know, think about some client companies I'm working with right now, one of which is trying to, part of their, how are we going to win strategy is to deploy great products at an accelerated pace. And that's a very generic articulation of how they're trying sure. to win about product expansion, new, build new stuff that's innovative and sell it to our well-established entrenched base of customers. And so that then begs the talent question of, do we have the right fit for purpose team in place to build the types of things in the sort of innovative way we're trying to do? And that's a real look in the mirror moment for, yeah, for these companies to say, well, how well geared are we actually? Do we have the right skills and competencies and attributes in the people that are going to really matter and move the needle against that strategic objective? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what I think about when I just, when I talk about talent is looking at that piece in isolation. And then you're raising a really important interrelated point, which is to what degree is the culture in place to foster the, the performance, the success, the engagement of that talent. Right. And it's a whole, you know, it's a whole nother ball of wax, but I, I, I think you're right to point out those two things are uh, very interrelated and inter intertwined. And it's uh, my own experience from, from my coaching is, is the movement and COVID had a big um, impact on it of what I call the employee experience as culture, which is, um, I didn't see that moving the needle as much because what I saw was that when you and I got bored with the ex employee experience at our shared employer, we'd find a different employee experience that we thought was better and just move. And companies kept chasing saying, well, we need to improve the, the, the culture. And what they were really doing was improving the employee experience. And in the long run, that I don't see that working. Uh, it may, it, I may be proven wrong, but I don't see the employee experience as a culture, as a, as a scaling recipe. What uh, leads you to that conclusion? Um, I, I think the biggest thing, and it may go back to Dan Pink's work. Uh, I know Dan a little bit and he's, um, you know, he came out with what a decade ago on drive. If, if you're, if you're pursuing 
autonomy, purpose, and mastery, um, especially that mastery piece, people will play with the Lego set forever if, if it's engaging and it's challenging and they get to do it with other people that are like-minded. And that could be an enriching culture or that could just be a polite culture. It doesn't have to be a, an employee experience culture. In fact, if they say, hey, guys, you got to take a break from the Legos because we're doing Thursday karaoke because that's our culture, you kind of get pissed. You say, can I just, I got work to do here and it's, and it's all consuming in a great way. Um, the two are very different. And I watch companies um, concoct or superimpose, maybe is the better way. They superimpose an employee experience on people that just say, do we need to have a ping pong tournament? Is that really helping us build camaraderie as a team? Or is that, is that, uh, what if I, what if I know I'm going to lose and I don't want to embarrass myself? Am I, a, am I a poor sport for not even signing up? I think there's a fair amount of that and it hasn't been worked very well. And I, uh, the, the, the outcome that's desired is that this is good for everyone. And I suspect it's not. Um, I, I had a, I had a client in COVID they wanted to do virtual happy hours. And I thought it was well-meaning, but what they did was they, they hired a service and sent everybody a six pack of craft brews. And I asked them, I said, are you aware that you have any uh, people recover in, in recovery? Do you have people whose religious beliefs don't include alcohol? And they, they said, well, we, we just did, we, yeah, we, we, we asked people what they wanted. Well, are you gonna out yourself? If you're, if you're in recovery, are you going to just say, send me what, send me the best one and then give it to your neighbor? Cause you don't want to, they hadn't thought of that. And it, it landed about the way I thought it was about 25% of the people just said, why are they sending me beers? Or I don't want all those raw calories. <laughs> it could be that it could just be that. And that I, I, their intentions were well-meaning, but it was this user experience. Like let's have a real beer when we do our Friday virtual happy hour. Cool. But you could have done it. You could have, could have been bring your own beverage and you could have sent a gift basket and then you're not offending people at least. But um, it, the, this, this kind of stuff, it's hard to land when your team's bigger than a certain number, it's hard to land one, ping pong tournament and have everybody say we all love ping pong because who all not everybody loves ping pong <laughs> yeah not all of us are good at ping pong as i'm a case the risk for embarrassment is always there so right. Uh, right. that's what i mean when i say the user experience piece is throwing more throwing more things at the employee as if they're all positive um to me that's a tricky game it's a very tricky game, as opposed to we, we provide a platform where you will be engaged with challenging, meaningful work. And if you want that, come here. And if you don't, this is the wrong place for you. We're not the place for you. Yeah. And that's okay. That's not the place for you. But uh, that's a, I've noticed those are the cultures that tended to scale because the talent got optimized. They said, this is super, we have to, oh, we have to colonize Mars. Man, this is going to be hard and it's going to be fun. And I don't know whether you get all the former Trekkies or what you get, but all the people that flock to that say, I can't, I got to go there. And all the people say, it's, that's too much work. That sounds like those guys are just, it's, uh, yeah, it's not for me. They both got the right answer right. because the culture was super clear. We're going to engage you in meaningful work. 
They were very intentional about who they were and who they weren't. Yeah. And as a result of being clear on that and casting that clarity into the world, you tend to attract the type of people that are like-minded. And, 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 and in COVID, and, what I noticed, the user, the, the, uh, the employee experience was, here's our package of perks and benefits and whatnot. And people would just, uh, they get bored. After six months at your place, they'd say, you know what? They do ping pong. I actually like cornhole. Okay. So you'd switch over that and you go, that's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. And companies would chase and say, okay. Uh, it, it's, it's like the, it's like the treating the symptoms, not the cause kind of thing where the yeah. symptom, the, the short, short lived symptoms are, are, in a way kind of equated here to giving people a quick shot of dopamine via yeah. some, it's a know, dopamine, it's a dopamine recipe. Exactly what it is. The, you know, the underlying, the underlying thing that people, things that people want are things like that, you know, those which you, you highlighted earlier of autonomy and purpose and the ability to attain mastery. And um, yeah, so I, th I think the, the idea of just putting some kombucha in the break room and, and, you know, putting a ping pong table in, in the lobby is, is well-intentioned, but short-sighted. Yeah. And it you know, begs this question, John, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on, but I, in, in the private equity world, the, um, you know, I've seen the evolution of this space over the last 15 years, and we have gone from a, a world in which culture was not even in the conversation. No, it was never. It was all financial engineering. Yeah. All financial engineering and the numbers on the spreadsheet and the investment case, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Gone from that world to a world where investors nowadays have, uh, this has been studied and kind of bears out in some of the numbers, but have a strong appreciation for the importance of culture to investment returns. Mm -hmm. and in 87, there was a study done by um, uh, somebody a couple of years ago, it may have been Bain or McKinsey or somebody, but um, where they concluded that 87% of investors by their own admission uh, recognize the importance of culture to investment returns. And by contrast, only about 30%, 30 some odd percent of investors are actually intentional about sizing up the culture that they're right. investing in. Yeah. So there's this kind of knowing doing gap, but we know that it's- aware, Awareness versus action, yeah. Right, and it, so I've, you know, I thought a lot and, uh, and talked to some people around what, what explains that knowing doing gap. And there's different things for different people that explain that, those that fit into this category of knowing but not doing. But I think the biggest thing is just uh, culture is squishy and it's nebulous and it's nuanced as you, you know, as you uh, brought to life with the earlier example. And so, um, so I'm curious to hear your perspective on if you had to define culture for somebody who's not as steeped in all the nuance of culture as, as you are and as I've, you know, tried to become, how would you, how would you boil down culture? No, it's a great question. Um, what I emphasize with my clients first and foremost is culture is an outcome, not a catalyst. Mm. And think about it. If, if, uh, if you and I are both applying at the same company and they've got five core values, integrity, honesty, fairness, uh, innovation, and creativity, I've just made those up. It's not like you and I walk in the door with none of that. So the culture that the, the company we're applying to doesn't, drive us to be more innovative, more integrous, more, uh, it doesn't. If you're a dirty dealer and I'm a embellisher, those are on a spectrum of honesty. 
an embellisher might be good in sales because they're not super straight arrow, but they wouldn't be very good in the accounting department because you say embellishment to the books means jail time. They're not shaping me or you when we walk in. Now who we are 30 days after we're there, they go, wow, I really like working with Dan. He's, he's uh, super helpful. He always raises his hand, says, hey, I got, I got some margin today. I could help out. Um, that's, how, that's an outcome. And we, it shows up after we've done it. And what I notice about culture that doesn't work is that companies think that when they send you to what I call Mao re-education camps to teach you their five core values, it's as if you didn't have them. Uh, and I'll tell you the other thing that I notice is that when they say, here's what we mean by fill in the blank, innovation. They have a two sentence description. If you need a description, then that's the way we do innovation. They say, if it's not super clear, um, then it, it won't work. But, the, but if you take the premise that culture is an outcome, then we add up the score and say, here's who we are. And let's look at that. If we're going to shift that, we can shift who we, who we want to be or, or we can incentivize or gamify the way we want to play. But you can't, I don't think you can take people from the street and suddenly make them more integrous than they already are or make them more innovative, more creative. Um, so I'm, I'm not a big fan of culture as driving the needle for financial results. Um, I'm more in the camp that we're adults here. Let's, let's figure out how, how to play well together. And that could be almost anything, but does it need to be a specific way? No, it has to support what we're up to commercially. And can, can we colonize Mars with people that are overly kind? Maybe, I don't know. Well, let's try it. Um, is kindness connected to colonizing Mars? If not, then let's not have it as one of our core values, but we don't think it'll help us get to Mars. Probably it's not so useful. Um, oh, and most companies don't do that. They, they come up with in a vacuum, here's the, here's the values we love. And then they're disconnected from their commercial vision. That's, that's what I see with culture. And for me, it, it all starts with, if you consider that culture is an outcome, not a catalyst that helps you frame the conversation best. So. Really interesting perspective. You're, you're real time kind of shaping the way I think about this, but the, um, the way I've, you know, short mouthed it for clients of mine who struggle with the same idea that many of us, many people do. And many of us have in our careers of like, what is it? What is it? I know, I think it's important, but I don't really know what this thing right. is. The way I've characterized it, which I think is related a little bit, a little bit different than, but related to the way you're describing it is the culture today. Let's talk about the culture today. What is it? Okay. Culture today is the, the kind of the summation, the sum product of the attitudes, the beliefs, and the behaviors that are the most prevalent in the business today. Absolutely. And they're noticeable. Yep. Noticeable. And so how do you define the culture? A guy like me walks in and I sit in your office and I go to meetings and I observe. And so the, the, the behaviors most certainly are evident. Attitudes, beliefs, yep. and behaviors are most certainly evident. You'll start to see themes across how do different people, how do the different cells in this organism kind of behave similarly. Right. 
And then the beliefs and attitudes are one layer deeper. And sometimes you have to kind of dig beneath to understand what is the narrative, the unconscious in people's minds that's guiding the behaviors that you're seeing visibly. Yep. But, you know, it takes a, just, just some observation and some question asking and some, you know, some curiosity to, to really get clear on what are, the, what are the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that are the most prevalent uh, in the business today. That's a separate question, however, from uh, the, the more aspirational lens that I put to this, which is what are the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that are the most important to success? Mm-hmm. And so that, that, you know, that presupposes that you've actually gotten clear on what is success. Is it colonizing the moon or, you know, colonizing Mars? Is it, what is success? It gets back to the idea we kind of hit on indirectly earlier on, which is beginning with the end in mind of where are we, where are we actually trying to get to and how are we going to get there? Um, and working backwards from that definition of success to say, what are the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that are the most important to getting there? Right. In some cases, the things, and I think you make a good point that there's, there's not, no real proven algorithmic way of knowing that A will lead to B when it comes to cultural attribute leading to some outcome. But, um, but just being thoughtful about sitting down and talking about and grappling with and developing some hypotheses on, Hey, these cultural attributes that are present today are footholds for us to leverage into the future. We think, we think they serve us well today. We think they map to where we're trying to get to. And Oh, by the way, these other attitudes, beliefs and or behaviors that manifest today actually feel like they could be counterproductive yeah. get in the way of us getting there. And so let's think about what would we need to do to evolve behaviorally um, in such a way that will be more conducive to us moving down this path we're trying to, to move down. You know, it's, it's interesting because the, the, the question I have, and I pl- tend to play this role, I don't tell the client that, but I said, if we have a National Geographic film, film crew come in, like the guys that filmed the, uh, li- a pride of lions hunting, yeah. And they follow them for 45 days or 90 days and then they get a 30 minute special out of it. If, if they, if they followed us around and filmed everything we, that we were do, doing and had no dog in the fight, what would they say? That's our culture. As opposed to what we claim we are on our website that, that most people can't remember. You say, if you can't remember the five core values, what are the chances you're living any of them? You're just, li- you're just doing your job or getting by. Um, yeah, I'm also a very big proponent of one core value and not one core value like an aspirational. We call it one core directive, which is a command for the entire organization. That's the only rule in the whole thing. And if you get that right, it's amazing. It's unbelievable for hiring because people say, finally, a company that's going to do that. Um, some of the best ones. Um, yeah, one what's is, an example of that? What's that? What's an example of that? Yeah, so some of the some of the best examples. Um, one of my favorites is um, do the best work of your life. It's not please do or we do. It's a command. So when you show up every day, better than yesterday, because if it's the best work of your life today, it had to be better than yesterday. And there's there's only two versions of that. Either let's say after thirty days we sit you down and say, Dan, how did you? what's your sense of your own journey through this, do the best work of your life. And you say, well, I love it. And I've been you know, doing my best. I'll tell you one truck tricky point though, is my computer's a little slow and I can't get the workout as quickly as that. Cause I'm, we're doing big models and, and big files and whatnot. Anyway, I can get a faster computer. 
the CEO has now the CEO has to do the best work of his life and say, Dan is waiting on speed on his computer. And for three grand, we can get him a super high pop. It's crazy to pay you a six figure engineer salary and give you a, a 499 computer that doesn't. So the CEO has a, has a new computer on your desk tomorrow because that's how it plays out. And the one core directive dictates all the behavior. Yes. Um, the other piece is when they ask people and in hiring, that's the one question they say. One key question is, tell us a time when you did the best work of your life. And people will say, well, I, you know, I've always had a hard time doing that because, and if they go into the pity party, they just go, probably not a good place for you. <laughs> it's, it's just because it won't work. If you have an excuse or a story, it just, you'd be miserable there um, right. because what, what they tend to attract and it's by design is the guy on the left of you and the guy on the right of you are going to force you to be better than you've ever been in your life. Not because they're better than you, but they're really good at what they do and they're counting on you. Now you're going to have to step up your game. If you want that, what a great, think of athletics. If you want to win the champion, whatever sport you're playing, you want to be in that, that kind of an atmosphere or locker room where this guys say, I'm sorry, we do extra work on purpose so that we can win the championship. And if you want to go out drinking afterwards, this is probably not the team for you. You should go to a different team. And that, that happens all the time in pro sports is an easy place to do it. I'm not a sports junkie, but there's only one championship. So you don't win the top 50 teams to play for in the pro football league. You say there's only 32 teams. Oh, you've already made that league. Yeah, so right, right. who cares about that? Did you win the Super Bowl three of the last five years? Oh, that's a different, and, and it's a different caliber of player, not necessarily always the, the most talented, but harder working. So that, that's why we like one core directive. You come up with one rule and the, the brilliance in it, and it wasn't my brilliance, it was a client that brought it to me, but I built it all out. You have to get it right. If you only get one, you can't just say, let's do it this way because Amazon does it that way. You say, you're not Amazon. It probably won't work for you. Um, do the best to work of your life. Won't work everywhere. Um, the other one that uh, my second favorite is uh, Start With Yes. It's a SaaS-based software company. The short version is they went when from a garage band to about 250 employees. They went from six hours of meetings a day per person to 23. And they realized as, it, as things got more complicated, I couldn't just grab you in the hall and say, hey, can I grab you? I got I to move on and, and you're running that department. Now your team and my team, then we need a third team with legal. And so everything became a meeting. And so what they decided to do to get rid of the meetings or shut, close them down was every idea conditionally, you just say, I think we should move to a four-day work week. Great, thanks for the idea. We are conditionally approving that right now. So 10 seconds in, it's conditionally approved. Then they break up into teams. These, uh, these idea meetings where uh, they take six 10-minute slots, they break up into three-person teams and the command was talk me out of it. The only reason we decline or back away from a conditional approval is when you come and say, uh, and you can only, uh, you can't complain about it, you can only ask questions. So yours and my team, our little breakout session says, well, what happens if there's a big problem on a Friday? Do, that's the only question. We don't yell at them, say, can I float? Can I float my day off? Can I do it Wednesday and you do yours Thursday? Can yeah. I game the system? Can I take Friday off this week and Monday off next week so I get a four-day weekend every other? 
And they hadn't thought of that. So the way that works is the holder of the idea, usually with, uh, they, they thank people for the feedback and then withdraw the idea. They either never come back with it and say, we'll never do this. Or they say, with all that feedback, I'll rework the idea and come back. So they, they started getting rid of these meetings because they used to have an hour meeting and then they'd continue it. They'd say, well, this has been great feedback. Let's continue the conversation next Thursday. Now that's another hour. So now it's multiple teams in multiple meetings for things that three months later they would decline. And he said, now we do it in a series of a good idea will take three or four of these iterations. And so you sign up next week for, you say, got it. That's all I, I needed the feedback. I'll come back next week with a better version and you're going to get the feedback again, but now you've got a different, it's technically a different brilliant because it solved the speed that they were missing. It doesn't, didn't solve all their problems, but their number one uh, wet blanket was all this complication with meetings. So they just said, let's just conditionally approve everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I love so much about that example. Part of, you know, what, one, one thing that I think is really instructive for uh, the rest of us business leaders out there is being clear on what is the thing that is getting in our way yes. like issue. And then how can we just in a really simple, clear-minded way, how can we cast something to the team that will help puncture this issue? And, and, and solve it. Yeah. And yeah. What, what it seems like this company did a really good job of which, which is key, it, it sounds like, to the success of this sort of one clear directive idea is they figured out ways to get that idea working for them and operationalizing it with discipline. Absolutely. By contrast, you know, I, 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 can, think of, um, I can think of other companies that, you know, client companies, companies I've worked with that actually have for whom or for which this say yes to, what, what, what's the phraseology used? Uh, start with yes. Start with yes, could be self-destructive. At a they, nuclear power plant, it would be a disaster. Yeah, why don't we just rev it up by pressing the red button? Okay, oh yeah. no, no, it wouldn't work there. But or, or, com or companies that have shiny object syndrome and who they're, you know, they're still saying, saying yes to too many things. Couldn't do it. Uh, couldn't do it. So the, the piece that, that we found organically grew as well as the culture grew from there. Because I asked him, I said, after six months of this, he said, so what have you noticed has come out? And they said, we're a complete idea meritocracy. Now when the high school intern comes with an idea, it goes through the exact same rigor. And sometimes because they have the, the wisdom of innocence, they see stuff we don't, their ideas pass. And it used to be the, the team leaders and the senior management were the only ideas because they had the loudest voice. We are now almost entirely an idea meritocracy. That culturally would have been something they could have written down and said, we want to be an idea meritocracy. But in a hierarchical structure, it never works out that way. This one core directive forced them into saying, every idea gets the same rigor. We don't care where it came from or who brought it. It's either, it either makes it through this pass or it doesn't. That was one. The other is they, uh, they said, we've noticed that everybody now is more... Um, more catalytic in their um, contribution because they realize, oh, wait, they'll listen to me. Yes, we'll listen if, if you have a great idea. And so what they noticed is all of the hidden or buried wisdom in the organization is now coming out. Whereas before people had great ideas and they just said, nobody listens to me and I don't get, and I don't get compensated for it. They don't get a compensation for an idea that makes it through the, the gauntlet, but you, 
there's a belonging that happens when you say, you know, I noticed in our such and such that this in our onboarding, it doesn't work very well. I have an idea. Here's my idea. Great. Talk me out. And they go right into talk me out of it. It's just a proposal. And I thought, oh, so now they get the whole culture that goes around this. And I've worked with them for a while, but I, I said, you do have to prepare for the day when you grow out of this. It doesn't mean you'll, because this won't be the one that drives results anymore. At your stage of growth, it's perfect. There will come a point where you guys are 2,500 employees where you need a different core directive. And that'll be a difficult switch because you say, well, what do we do with the old one? You can still have that as a best practice, but it's not the one that drives the whole company. And they realize the power and simplicity in having only one because everybody wants to say, well, we need three. As soon as you get three, what happens in a wrongful termination suit? Oh, do we go with the first one, the second one, or the third one? Problem is people line up between, and then everybody has to say, I better talk to my manager before I make a decision because I don't know what to do. And when you only have one, everybody knows exactly what to do. Do the best work of your life. If all else fails, how can I ever go wrong? I can't get fired for that. That's the, the, and then the only thing we can argue about, was that the best work or was it? That's fine. They're willing to take that chance. If everybody's failing only in that direction that they're doing the best work, that, that's a good place to, that's a good place to fall or fail. They don't, they don't have to micromanage that. So it, that was the other piece is that this tends to free up senior leadership because you don't have to manage people anymore. That it's, um, it's one of the most powerful things and it tends to not replace culture, but it tends to clean up culture because then all the other stuff is, um, is uh, judged pre- pretty sharply. And not, not meanly, but it's just, you go, does it matter that we're kind? Maybe kindness is on a scale too. We could be polite, professional. Yeah, we don't have to be kind. Oh, so maybe kindness wasn't so helpful. It's not a bad one to aspire to, but is it necessary? No, it's not necessary. Don't be a dick, but <laughs> you don't have to be kind. Uh, right. You can get the job done without you being kind. So uh, I love the clarity that that creates. Um, just this, this really simple, clear, you know, one rule type of one directive type of approach is just, it's just, it's clear. It makes simple and clear. It's if if there's, you know, if there's nothing else I remember when I wake up and stroll into work this morning, if I just remember this one thing. Well, it's impossible not to know it because there's only one rule and everybody has it and you go, how long does it take to figure that out? Because it's everywhere. Uh, it's how they, it's how they do their performance reviews and they do self-assessment. And then they do company assessment. How do you judge yourself on doing the best work? And then how does your manager? And then how's the organization? Is the organization supporting you to do the best? So there's that structural piece. It's it's super, like you say, it's super clear, super simple. Everybody's judged the same way. Um, it works really well for them, but they don't have, that's a gaming company. So they never have to talk to customers. You post a game online and they can review your game but nobody ever calls and says i want to talk to the customer onboarding thing because it's all done online so they realize all we have to do is manage in-house we have to be really good in-house that's that's perfect for them absolutely perfect for them it would not work for a retail shoe store probably because the customers can come in and be random wow, how do you judge taking care of an irate customer? Did you do it best of your life? And I would have done it differently. What if both could work? It, so it wouldn't work in that. That's fine. That's why you have to get it right. I think that's the biggest power in that one is one forces you to, and 
companies when they start this, um, I work a lot with them, they try one on. They say, let's try one and see, and they'll know after about two weeks, they just go, it worked great for this department, but boy, for the, it was a big hit and it caused trouble here. And you say, could you correct that? Or do you have, are you slightly off? Or do you scrap it? Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you raised a really, you raised a point in, uh, in that example that I think is really, really critical. And that is, it goes back to this old idea of what got us here may not get us there. No, they won't. Different stages of a company's evolution and, and scaling, there are different things that have served you up until this point right. that have gotten you here and may not get you there. Yep. And so, you know, I thought, I thought a lot and in, in wrestled in my own mind with this idea of our core values or, you know, what the, the one clear directive equivalent, are, are those uh, indeed core to the extent that they are uh, permanent and never changing? Right. And there, there have been those that have argued that, that point. Or do core values, the things that we, the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that we think are the most important to success, do those need to evolve as the definition of success changes? And I thought long and hard about this, and I heavily favor the latter point of view, which is there are certain things about a culture that may remain true forevermore. And by the sheer fact that the things that are required for success are changing at each stage of the game, there are, there are ways in which your culture, whether it translates into a core value or core values, it's things about the way that your culture and how we roll around here need to change in, in, in order to get us there. It's funny how companies uh, don't have any problem recognizing technical debt. Uh, cultural debt's the exact same thing. Who you were as a garage band was perfect as you went from a garage band to the first 50. It probably started showing strains at 150 or 200 and you guys are at a thousand and you're still trying to hold fast to that. You're alienating a lot of people. It's, it's, I call it cultural debt. And the problem is the people from the garage band probably when you're at a thousand have the most power because they were the early ones and they moved up. And so it, it's, uh, it's not as easy to see as technical debt. Technical debt, people understand. They say, yeah, we had to make compromises and put patches and uh, spit and glue and duct tape to make it work. And after five or 10 years of that, uh, we really ought to rewrite the entire platform they can understand that they don't understand cultural debt as much because what they the 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 remedy for that is a cultural reset and that feels painful it's actually it's actually very cleansing and and to do it as a company it's 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 pretty cool to do but it's it's not uh, it's not for the faint hearted uh, but I, I, we call it cultural debt. It, it happens in lots of companies and they don't recognize it because they say no we're we are all about this and you say and it's killing you. You, it, you. Like you say, you can't, you, you flatlined and you don't realize it's because you're still holding true to something that won't get you to your commercial vision. It just won't. And, uh, and well, thank not, you. At, and not at the size of that. Yeah. Thank you for building the business case for my business and for your, your business. <laughs> uh, what, I'm no smarter than, in fact, I'm, I'm probably considerably less intelligent by many measures uh, compared to many of my clients. But what I don't, what I, what I have that they don't is the benefit of fresh eyes. I yep. can come in in a way that they can't because they're in the jar. Yeah, they can't see it. Them. Yeah, I can yep. help them to just see what is difficult to see when you're stuck when you're stuck inside the jar. 
Yeah. And, it, you know, step one on the road to cultural recovery is just first understanding with, with clear eyes, where are we today? Yeah. No, this is all right. Point. All right. One, one last question, and then we got to wrap up. Um, you are who you are today with your talents and abilities and, and personality and friendships and co- contacts. Who was the junior high version of Dan? Like, like, could we have seen in junior high, oh yeah, this guy's going to evolve to the, to the guy that exists today. Well, tell, us about, tell us about you in junior high that, that would have given us a clue. Let me paint the picture for you. I was, you know, junior high. So how, how old am I at the time? 12 or 13? 12, 13, maybe 14. I'm probably weighing in at about 55 pounds soaking wet. I was going to say, but all muscle. It's lean. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's lean, lean mass. Yeah. yeah, right. Shortest kid in class uh, by a pretty wide. I was the runt in class. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, and yeah, so what attributes would people back then use to describe me? It was, um, I was definitely an achiever type. Okay. This has been a constant like, for me. Like a good student, like a good student achiever type. Good student achiever type needed, you know, I was an, an altar boy and I needed to be the head altar boy. I was, I, if right. there was a thing I was doing, I wanted to be the, I wanted to achieve. Top guy. Yep. Okay. Um, there were some areas in which my natural talents or lack thereof, as the case may be, didn't allow me to achieve, not the least of which was, was sports. I was pretty average athlete, but, um, but I was an achiever type. I think that was, that was the big thing. Um, and I think, you know, as I've traced back to understand where did that come from? Like what, what, what planted that in me? Yeah. Part of that was probably just DNA. So something about my genetic code. Yeah, you just came out to shoot that way. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's also something to be said for just early childhood experience. I had, you know, we had some illness in my family when I was, uh, when I was young and for a while, um, as my parents and we're, we're dealing, we're dealing with that and trying to get, um, our family through that, the, you know, this was unspoken at the time, but I think the, the kind of expectation or understanding was, um, I just kind of needed to take care of myself. My, my yep. parents did a great job of providing food and they were loving, right. and ama- I mean, amazing parents in so many ways, but their attention necessarily was on uh, providing for the family. Both of them worked full-time jobs, one of which would yep. travel every week for work and, and, um, and getting our family through this situation. So I kind of yep. had to just take care of myself. And what that, what that I think created in me was this need, this unconscious need to justify my existence by achieving. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Like I, I probably at the time felt you didn't, a little- You didn't have a chip on your shoulder. You weren't angry or upset with anything. You were just like I, I, I dry, I internal drive. A little, bit, a little bit overlooked. Yeah. And again, I don't, I, I, I hold no grudge about that, but yeah. I probably felt a little bit overlooked at the time. And so this achieving maybe for me was a- uh, a mechanism that was um, was aimed at getting some some recognition and making sure people knew that sure. I was there. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. So I think that, that was a big part of and and you know as as most of these things go, the things you know the achieving type, uh, the rambunctiousness. There was another element of who I was as a as a, uh, a sure. junior high guy. These things are still present in different ways for me today. Yeah. And, well, I purposely uh, picked junior high because I've never heard somebody say, oh, I loved my braces and my pimples and my, and, and my body changing. Yeah, I, that was, that was perfect. That was a perfect platform because most people it's, that's a, 
those are tough. Nobody says, oh, I loved seventh and eighth grade. Let's <laughs> just go. <laughs> and I never want to relive it. And it didn't even have to be traumatic. You just say, yeah, God, I had braces. Ah, and, that, and that weird thing that went around your head and your mom made you wear it. It's like, really? I have to wear this to school? Come on, mom. Yeah. <laughs> We're describing to a T. My, uh, you're painting a very vivid picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you take as soon as you're, as soon as you're half block away to the bus stop, you tear that thing off. You say, there's no way awareness at school. <laughs> so, um, now, you, now that, you, I mean, now that you, have me, you have me looking in the mirror on, on this junior high thing, I, I'm also realizing this is a new realization for me. I've, I've done a lot of self-exploration and, yeah. and this sort of work in my life, but I'm realizing this new thing, which is that um, there was a big people-pleasing element to who I was back. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Which I think was probably part and parcel of the same, the same idea of needing to, yeah. wanting recognition, craving recognition. Yep. And, um, and man, that's still present for me today. Yeah. That's, that's you know? funny. And, it's funny. And I think I, you know, I think there's certain things about the way that the ways that I've matured that have made that a lesser driving force in my life, the need for external validation yeah. and therefore yeah. the people pleasing, but that's still present for me. Yeah. Today. It's, it's, it's interesting to note. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you asking that question because I know this is a big part of your, your message in the world. And it's something I just really believe in, which is that, um, uh, if you, if you want to understand who you are today, which is of course, for hopefully obvious reasons, very important to just being an effective yep. leader. Um, the real, you know, the real raw material for understanding who you are today is to trace back to the early years and understand. Yeah. Pick, pick out who you were in third grade or in kindergarten. Yeah. Or junior high. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you didn't suddenly show up the way you are. Yeah, it's, that's Many of those things get clouded over or obscured as time goes on. And I, yeah. you know, I, do, I do work with leaders around um, this idea of uh, helping them reconnect with the things that they're great at, the things that most energize them and the things that bring them a sense of meaning. And it turns out the same things that energize me today are the things that energized me when I was yeah. six years old or 12 years yeah. old or 18 years old. They, they manifest in new ways. I apply, yeah. you know, apply, I apply those same kind of passions in, in different ways, but they're constants throughout my life. Same. So if I want to understand how to do more work that energizes me today, a great place to go to look is what, you know, what, what energized me when I was six years old before right. the world tried to convince me otherwise. Right. Right. Well, you weren't paid to play. Right. <laughs> yeah. What can I, what do I choose to do today? Oh, could I play in the sandbox for hours? Maybe. Yeah. Could I draw forever? Yeah. Could I, did I yeah. need to be around other people? Did I like to be solid? Yeah. All those things you say that was probably, uh, maybe some by circumstances, but I bet a lot by choice. You say, yeah, give me, give me a crayons and paper and I could draw forever. I couldn't, I, I, that was not for me, but for some people you just go, oh yeah. And you're still super high. Oh, you're a graphic designer. Oh, that's shocking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, thanks so much for, uh, investing some time with us today. Really appreciate you showing up on, uh, on genius at scale. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed the, the conversation and learning from you. So thank you.